Imagine a world where people whistle joyfully while walking down the street. Nutritional psychotherapist Julia Ross remembers those days and is aiming to bring them back with contrarian information in her books, The Diet Cure and The Mood Cure. In this show, we'll learn about the connection between mood disorders, cravings, overweight, and protein. We'll also learn the real reasons why deficiencies in any of the five brain chemicals you need to be happy result in cravings and compulsive eating. Coming up next on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. So I'm sure you've heard that as you age, it gets harder to lose weight. Well, that's total bull because my friends, Laura and Veronica Chows, they can prove it. They're a mother-daughter duo, and they've lost 125 pounds between the two of them at ages 50 and 20. And they've kept it off for over two years without starvation, deprivation, or hunger. So now you can learn their system and a whole lot more with a free 10-day trial to their online membership. They'll give you the diet, the recipes, classes, and more. Sign up today at nutritionheretic.com forward slash utmost diet. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. It's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well being. Hello and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. This is Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic, and it's good to be back with you. Uh, this week, I want to talk about the truth about fat people. This is um, something that I've talked on and off about, uh, which is that our modern society has taken it upon itself to blame fat people for all of our social ills. And as you know, I am not I don't agree with that. Now, obviously, there are health consequences to being morbidly obese, uh, as the term morbidly obese intends to um, to explain. Uh, however, you know, there's there's so much more going on than people just being gluttons. Uh, many people whom I've come across who are obese, they're actually not eating enough calories. And that, that's often a shocker, but it really shouldn't be because almost every diet book today will tell you that when you cut your calories, you slow your metabolism. And when you slow your metabolism, you gain weight. So why then is it that they always induce a starvation component at the beginning of their diet to force people to lose weight? And really, I think it's because uh, of the missing component that we're going to discuss today. Uh, and, and this goes actually deeper. It goes into our moods. And uh, a few weeks ago, I know that I mentioned a French doctor whose book I've been reading, books I've been reading, I should say, uh, Dr. Delabo. He is uh, talking about cravings and how when we have certain cravings, it's because we are not giving our bodies the right fuel. We're not giving ourselves the fats and the proteins that our brain craves. And as a result, we fall in 
to this trap of eating these very starchy, sweet, addictive uh, comfort foods uh, that people, well, some people refer to them as comfort foods, foods, other people refer to them as poison. Uh, but in any case, there is a doctor. She was actually the first person uh, to corroborate this once when I first started to notice it. Uh, her name is Julia Ross. She is our guest heretic today. She's also the author of The Mood Cure and The Diet Cure. And she's going to talk to us today about the connection between the mood and the weight. Welcome, Julia, to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with a fellow heretic. (laughs) Well, you know, we are heretics because it seems that there's two camps. There's the food pyramid conventional look at things, you know, where you have to have X amount of this and that. And it's all, you know, in this beautiful little pyramid. and, And we all are supposed to fit into that. And then on the other side, we've got people who are just into starvation in many, you know, very culty ways. Uh, they're cutting their calories. They're sometimes half the calories. Uh, I, I believe it was your book that first pointed out to me that many people are dieting on uh, fewer calories or, or similar to people in concentration camps during World War II. Or fewer calories. Exactly. And so, you know, this is, this is something that is really, it's, it's an epidemic, I think, in our country because, and increasingly across the world, although there are, and other than you, almost every other doctor that I've known who talks about this is in Europe. They're all, or, or from Europe initially. And they're all, they're all noticing that we're just cutting too many calories, that the consequence, I don't care how, you know, nutrient dense we think our diets are, uh, once we're going b- below what I learned from your book, uh, 2100 calories, we're going into starvation mode. Uh, but we're also, it's not just about the weight. It's also about the bone and tooth health. It's also about our moods and how we interact with one another, which are suffering at the hands of, of trying to induce weight loss simply through calorie restriction. So I want to start out by uh, uh, talking to you a little bit about well, one, asking you about uh, a, a quote, well, maybe not a quote, but uh, a, a fact that was in your book, uh, The Mood Cure. And you say that the rates of adult depression and anxiety have tripled since 1990. Explain to us why triple. That's, that's like a lot. And, and it's getting to the point where I think people are sort of priding themselves on having a mood disorder. What's going on here? Well, it has to do with something that started in the 1970s, um, a quiet but complete revolution in the way we ate and the way we fueled our brains, which the brain is the control center for our moods and our appetite. You talked about what the connection is, and we can get to that. But uh, the reason that we can't maintain a positive mood, which we used to be quite good at. Americans were actually famous for their upbeat personalities. And uh, I remember myself growing up, you couldn't go a day without walking down the street and people were whistling, singing even. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm picturing like a one of those uh, quintessential 1950s commercials where the guy's just like skipping along the street, you know, whistling to himself. It wasn't that far off from reality. <laughs> um, we just it never occurred to us not to sing. It was just an expression of our brains being in order. Our brains were well fed because before 1970, although our diet was starting to deteriorate with increased amounts of sugar, but in general, we were eating three meals a day. Most of the food was fresh cooked. We never skipped a meal. Uh, and we were uh, eating uh, 
uh, an average, women were eating an average of 2,100 calories which before 1970, which is where that figure came from. And speaking of figure, um, there were no weight problems um, uh, much prior to 1970 when all these dietary changes took place. Um, and once they began to uh, erode our, our traditional diet, these changes began to erode all of our functions. So it's not just that we're three times more depressed, we're three times more likely to have cancer, um, we're about 100 times more likely to have diabetes. It was 2% in the 60s. Wow. It's now, it's now 55% as of this year's computation. So the majority of Americans are diabetic or on the diabetic spectrum, you know, pre-diabetic or diabetic. It's all the same. So uh, this is a drastic, unprecedented deterioration, you know, really the greatest nutritional crisis in world history. And uh, you wouldn't know it from from looking at the literature, you know, um, we're actually supposed to be eating less, uh, less of all the traditional foods, less pro less animal protein, less saturated fat. These are both absolute uh, pillars of the traditional human diet for the last 2 million years. Without heart disease, without weight problems, without a cancer epidemic, certainly without a diabetes epidemic in sight, so we made some terrible blunders and and have been clinging to them desperately. Is that just to save face or do you think this is totally orchestrated just to make us buy every antidepressant, every cancer treatment, every diabetes, you know, insulin drug? It's hard not to think, uh, but you don't have to choose. It's both. You know, it's definitely greed. Um, greed is, you know, probably the greatest driving power because the food into this food industry, you know, it, it's just incredibly profitable because the goods, uh, <laughs> the bads that are being made by this industry are very, very cheap to make. Right. Um, and, uh, I was just reading a, a new study, an international study, uh, because of course now all of our weight and health problems, uh, have spread all over the world. And. This was a, a study showing that 60% of the American diet, which is, of course, becoming the diet of the world, is completely nutritionally void, except for calories. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, this 60% completely nutritionally void. And then we go on a diet and don't eat anything. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're flying between one form of malnutrition and another and the brain cannot help but suffer. Yeah, or, or I, I was going to say that one of the things that also happens is that people begin to focus on the foods that maybe are not necessarily as easily absorbed, particularly once we take out the animal proteins and fats. They will brag about how many you know beans and vegetables they're getting in their diet, but how much are they actually assimilating once they've removed everything else? And even if they are assimilating it, which, you know, I pray that they are, um, they just can't be getting adequate amounts of the essential uh, amino acids that, that the mucure is all about amino acids. These are the, the, the fragments of protein. And these are, are the required nutrients for any kind of a decent mood. And so the question about a book called The Mood Cure is, well, why do we need a cure? And we need one, 
and we need a, a physiological nutritional cure because our mood problems are primarily problems of protein malnutrition and lack of absorption. Right. Absolutely. So explain to us what is, you know, the, the, we talked about the protein fragments uh, that are called amino acids. So many people, like you, I'm sure you've been on the internet, you've seen people saying, well, you know, you get just as much uh, amino acids or protein from goji berries as you do from a, a six ounce ser- serving of steak or whatever they make up. You know, kale has so much protein in it, quinoa protein. They're, they're looking at all these plant sources of protein. And it's, it started where, it, I guess back in the 60s, right, with uh, Frances Moore LePay, she started telling people, oh, you just mix your beans and your rice and you got protein. And now it seems like we've gone beyond just beans and rice. We've gone into fruits and leafy greens as protein sources. Talk to me a little bit about the faulty thinking behind that. You know, what it, what's is it is it faulty thinking? I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just putting this on you because this is my view. But you know, is it faulty thinking to believe that you can get everything from a handful of goji berries? Well, there may be one or two people who can, uh, but we've seen over four thousand people in our nutrition clinic uh, since uh, the the uh, late '80s, and uh, none of them have been able to sustain decent mood, decent mental function, decent weight, decent health in all their efforts to be vegan, to be vegetarian, to mix their protein sources. So I can only say that our experience tells me no, and the history of the world tells me no. You know, when we have hundreds of thousands of years of high function, and suddenly when we cut out the traditional animal proteins, uh, and fats, we lose all of our health, all of our, our weight normalcy. Really, we, we just need to be very, very observant and simple minded. We don't have to be theoretical about it. And someone uh, who's lived through the years prior to the change in the 70s and remembers what we ate and how we looked and how we felt, it's easy for me to, to make, to draw these conclusions because I've actually seen it in living color. Right, yeah. And I, I grew up in the, in the 70s, and to uh, and it was really, uh, I'm not going to throw out any political parties here, but <laughs> I know that it was, it was in the early 80s where we really started to see that shift, I, I believe. And, and, you know, I was a kid, but I still noticed a really dramatic shift. And I remember my mom as an RN would tell us, she would come home with all these new factoids from the doctor, uh, about what they should and shouldn't be, what we should and shouldn't be eating. And I really got to say that I think that's when my health started to decline was with, we never went vegan at the time. Uh, but I definitely, you know, looking back, I said to myself, my gosh, that's really where it was like the, the, the nail in the coffin for me. You went low fat. Yeah, we went low fat. And we, we, my mom's against her better judgment went from, uh, butter to margarine because she was okay. told that her cholesterol levels would spike if she kept eating butter. So she went to margarine and a year later, guess what? Her, her cholesterol went up. So she was like, well, this didn't happen with butter. So I'm going back to butter. Good for her. Common sense prevailed for once. 
Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, we did have home cooked meals. I do know, you know, I do have several friends whose moms worked. My, well, my mom worked as well, but we always had a home cooked meal. Uh, you know, it didn't have to be fancy. It could just be some broiled chicken with rice and a vegetable for dinner, for example. You know, sandwiches at lunch. Like we almost never, I think Fridays was our day to, uh, have these little peccadillos, you know, go and, uh, have, have something, um, from the food truck at school. And maybe go out to McDonald's, which actually back in the seventies was still pretty real food based. And it was, uh, I didn't know that was ever the case. I, I do believe it was compared, well, comparatively. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I believe it was in the eighties when they switched to vegetable oil, uh, uh-huh. from, from tallow. They were using tallow up until then. And that's actually when Julia Child said she would never eat another McDonald's French fry again. Ah, great fact. <laughs> so, um, so t- tell us a-, a little about the, I'm going to get back to the three meals a day because there's a lot of people out there who are intermittent fasting and they're like, no, you don't need to eat three times a day. Uh, but, <laughs> but what's, t- tell me about false mood because I want to, I want to kind of, uh, explore a little bit more on the mood side before we get into diet. Well, we started with diet uh, as the cause for the, our, the decline of the brain's ability to generate positive moods. Um, and there are five parts of the brain, each one, uh, well, they're called neurotransmitters, and each one of them produces a different kind of positive mood. So we have this sort of orchestra of positive mood that's, that's very uh, natural to us. It's inborn, the ability to rebound from pain and stress and sing and whistle. Um, But if we don't have the nutrients that the brain needs to produce these mood, positive moods, then uh, we don't have them. And we go into the negative moods. Um, It's not like we go from positive moods to no moods. We go to the opposite extreme. So we have depression, we have panic. We We have school shootings. Yes, yes, we have ADD. The symptoms of a brain that's malnourished um, are very clear-cut, very well-researched. And my book, actually, The Mood Cure, starts out with a questionnaire that allows people to identify which set of false or negative moods do I have. Um, And by filling out that five-part questionnaire, you identify which part of your brain is not producing. Uh, and then the next step uh, is to correct the brain chemistry problems by feeding the poor thing whichever amino acid uh, or mix of amino acids is missing to produce it. Uh, and we have found over the years, as I say, working with thousands of people, that the change in mood alone um, generated by people using targeted amino acid supplements. Uh, brain-targeted supplements, um, that transformation becomes evident in about five minutes. Um, We have been doing amino acid trialing in our office uh, since about 1996, actually having people fill out the same questionnaire that the MUTRA begins with and then giving them the amino acid that's indicated by the score on their questionnaire and watching people change in front of us. Somebody who, you know, it's very typical for somebody to come in quite depressed, teary, uh, irritable, edgy, really fatigued, sitting back, slumped in their chair. And within five minutes, 10 minutes at the most, 
we start to see them smiling. Uh, they might even crack a joke. They're sitting up straight in their chair. Um, they're relaxing instead of, of sort of gripping the arms of the chair. Um, these are all mood transformations that the brain is so happy to make if it can only have the minimal amount of uh, protein nutrition that it really needs. Right. And this is, I think, really important to um, know that you, you had an actual uh, experience. It was a Native American woman, I believe, that came into your office that way, right? She was, uh, she was very slumped and you gave her just a little yeah. bit of what she needed. And, and all of a sudden she's like, wow. <laughs> she's... Well, no, she wasn't like, wow. She's never going to be like, wow. And a lot of Native Americans just don't ever get like that. Okay. You know, <laughs> but, More stoic. Uh, the change, the, the sparkle in the eye and the erect posture and the smiles. And uh, we actually started doing it because we, we didn't know what else to do. She was brought in um, by the uh, tribal health clinic staff. Uh, she, she actually volunteered because she was interested in nutrition. She had worked out in gyms and been given amino acids, and that sounded fine to her. So she came uh, down. But what they didn't tell me before they brought her was that she almost never talked. She'd come into the session. She never missed a session of counseling, but she never said anything. And so without getting her to say anything, I didn't know how to help her. So I thought, okay, we have a chart. Actually, I'm sitting in a room that has this chart, which is like a a mini version of the questionnaire in graphic form. And I brought it in and I showed it to her and I said, if I point to a set of symptoms on this five-part chart, will you nod if you have them? Mm. And that's what we did. I pointed and she nodded and I pointed and she nodded and I pointed and she nodded. There wasn't a single area of her brain that was functional. Wow. So we just started at the top with, um, with an energizing um, amino acid um, that fuels the part of the brain that uh, gives us metal, particularly metal energy. Um, and, you know, within five minutes, everyone in the room was looking at the other person next to them, raising their eyebrows in disbelief because from sitting completely still with no expression, with her eyes lowered, she was tracking everyone. She, her eyes were bright. She was sitting up straight. She was moving, you know, like she was crossing her legs and, and, uh, she was engaged. Yes. Right. Wow. So, uh, it's a great, it's a great story. And, um, I, I try and tell it in all of my books because I'm so concerned about the native American population of the United States. Right. And, and I, I think that the native American population is very similar to what we have here in Hawaii, where, uh, the native population has been marginalized. Uh, they're, you know, living, well, they don't really live in reservations here. They're, but they're, uh, basically the, the diet has been reduced to supermarket fare. Let's put it that way. Uh, so it's there, they tend to be food deserts in many ways. And, uh, and I believe, uh, even if they are, you know, maybe growing their own maize, let's say, uh, there's still uh, just this proliferation of junk foods. Now, how do the actually? I'm going to call. I'm not going to call them junk foods. I'm going to call them the anti foods, okay? Because you got you got you know Christ and the Antichrist. You got food and you got the anti food, right? So, <laughs> so the anti foods that these people are are eating, how do they mimic the brain chemicals that people really 
are trying to get at when they would have eaten in the past some bison, some fish, some dairy? Well, uh, keeping in mind that uh, it's not just anti-food, it, it's, it's, it's not food. It's high, it, there are calories in it, you know, from, right. to that extent it's food, but they're, they're really drug substances. And in the last 10 or 15 years, there's actually been research on, you know, what are these substances, these edible substances do in the brain? And there's a lot of information now about what they do, and it turns out that they have drug-like effects on the same five areas of the brain that are supposed to be generating a good mood. And they can force an increase in the production in those five areas of the brain so that you get a brief sense of relief. Right. And it's, it's a drug uh, process. And so there's withdrawal if you don't have the foods. And so it self-perpetuates that way. Right. And because it's such a, a dramatic effect, I would assume that that's part of the draw. I mean, first of all, there's the uh, the desire, I think, on, on, the, on the behalf of many people where they want to be, let's say, healthy. And, you know, the government says it's OK and the government says I shouldn't eat as much meat or as much fat. So you're avoiding those. So those are just out of the question. But all you're left with are these drug-like substances, which, right. which, if if I understand what you're saying here, is not only the sugar, high fructose corn syrup, uh, super refined starches, but it's also these additional chemicals that sometimes we don't even know what they are. Uh, anything that can be piggybacking flavor enhancers and artificial colors and that stuff as well, right? Well, um, I'm I'm actually talking about fructose dominant sugars okay uh, uh, and uh, white flowers so you know uh, white flour is uh, an old uh, companion uh, of the human race at this point right but when you combine uh, high fructose syrups and that includes agave and fruit syrups um, as a matter of fact apple syrup or apple juice has more fructose than coca-cola Absolutely. I'm always trying to get people to understand that. <laughs> they don't, they, they, they try to patronize me. Say, oh, well, I only, I only eat foods that are naturally fruit juice sweetened. And I'm saying, do you even know what you're saying? <laughs> well, no, they, they don't because nobody wants them to know. It's not common knowledge. And it sounds impossible that anything derived from a fruit could be a problem. But then sugar is derived from sugar cane, which is a fabulous plant. Exactly. Exactly. If you just a, a piece of sugar cane is beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's so it's, um, it's not a punch in the face the way refined sugar is. And that's the same for an apple versus concentrated apple juice. Well, and it, oddly enough, you know, sugar that comes from the from the cane or the beet has a locked-in ratio of fructose to glucose. It's 50-50. Right. It cannot, fructose cannot dominate. Mm. Um, it's, it's only in the 70s when we introduced this corn syrup that could be manipulated uh, in terms of the amount of fructose in relation to glucose that we started getting into trouble because we've been eating about 160 pounds of sucrose table sugar a year in the 60s. Right. Without a weight problem, we had... We had uh, cavities for sure, and our our heart health was deteriorating. But on the other hand, we'd also been eating um, hydrogenated fat since the 30s. So, so it, it's uh, but 
So when you combine um, the new sugars um, with the old flours, which also shock um, the system, especially in the amounts that we're eating, um, and not mixed with proteins and good fats, and you add things that are necessary to life, but also somewhat addictive, like salt and fat. They're both, you know, they're both pleasurable. Salt is, you know, required for life, actually. So, and and now we're we're adding marijuana to the mixes, um, <laughs> and that's not even mentioning chocolate, um, and uh, of course ca- caffeine. So we've got these blends of addictive substances, um, and anybody who's ever been around addicts um, knows the concept of a speedball, and that's what we have going is these combinations that create what they call a bliss point, you know, where all of the neurotransmitters in the brain are just firing briefly, but just magnificently. Um, So we've got, you know, an orgasmic kind of experience going uh, that we just keep wanting to get back to. So uh, at the beginning, I talked about Dr. Dillebo. He's the, the French doctor who has, uh, he actually created this diet in the 80s, uh, which I have seen it for ages and just never actually read the book. And I was somewhere and I said, I saw the book on a shelf and I read it. And he talks about um, how when we don't eat enough, he said, if you have a craving for candy or cake or whatever in the afternoon, you did not eat enough protein for lunch. He said, you need to eat up to the average person, you know, we're talking average heights and so on, uh, will need to eat about half a pound of, of protein at lunch to stave off uh, that, that those cravings. And so, you know, I've, I, I always test everything on myself before I recommend it to anyone else. And I'm, and I try it and I'm like, you know, he's absolutely right. And well, I can smell. Mothers told us, taught us, drilled into us in the 50s and 60s, you cannot skip a meal. Right. Because it's going to, and, and you can't eat junk because it'll ruin your appetite. And, you know, there was just common knowledge at that point. How do you spell his last name? Oh, uh, D-E-L-A-B-O-S. Well, uh, it's lovely to hear about uh, someone in Europe who, who has uh, such wisdom and common sense. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, it's it stems a little bit off of an well, not I shouldn't say, but I, I guess a lot of people might think of his diet as very similar to Atkins, but he does have some differences, uh, you know, from the from the early stages. And, uh, you know, he's also talking about uh, slow weight loss, which nobody wants to hear in this country. You know, we need it, we need it yesterday. Right. Uh, he's talking about, you know, you can lose just, you know, two to four pounds a month. That's fine. Just just let let your body let go of those extra pounds. Uh, by eating in this very structured way. Well, let, let me go somewhere. Okay. Uh, I think that, that this country is ready for um, this kind of information because of the poor uh, biggest losers mm. um, who's, I don't know if you know about it, there was a study done on them six years after yes. uh, a group of them uh, you know, competed successfully losing a tremendous amount of weight collectively. And what they found was that uh, they're in the process of starving themselves to enable them to do this. They had slowed their calorie burning capacity down by 500 calories a day. Yes. And so that's why they were regaining weight um, and and had to continue to exercise full time just 
to slow down the weight gain. Right, right. Even and aren't eating very much. Um, and in addition, uh, their starvation has set off something new for them, a whole new level of food cravings, so that the battle that they had was so much more difficult. And there was only one person who had been able to keep the weight off. And uh, she was a woman who said every waking moment was a screaming uh, for, you know, some kind of food that she felt she could eat. Um, so that's opened the door to looking very seriously at the dangers of low calorie dieting. And the, the dangers of low calorie dieting were obvious to me um, in the 1980s because I was the head of an eating disorders treatment program. And uh, my background is in psychotherapy, which is how I get involved in mood problems and uh, eating disorders, which at the time we thought were psychological. But um, those of us who were really specialists in eating disorders uh, were looking at the research, which showed that people who developed anorexia and bulimia were developing these problems in direct reaction to low calorie dieting. Mm -hmm. So it was very clear that it was very dangerous uh, to me. And so I wrote a book called The Diet Cure. It was my first book. Um, and my idea was to really stop dieting, you know, as the most serious threat to, to uh, our mental and physical health and our and normal weight. And it was later that uh, I learned uh, about the amino acids as cures for mood problems. But initially we used the amino acids as cures for craving so that people would not have to diet because they would be satisfied with moderate amounts of food that would not put weight on them. Right. And we had the same kind of instant success with food cravings using these amino acid supplements as we subsequently had with mood problems using this very same amino acid. So we get this extraordinary double whammy benefit from feeding the brain exactly what it needs. Um, and when I say feed, I'm talking about jumpstarting it with nutritional supplements, but then as soon as the appetite is normalized, people start eating adequate, generous levels of, of protein so that over time they don't need the, the supplements anymore. Right, right. So is there, because so many people are resistant to taking supplements and it's always the people who need it the most. I only get my, my nutrition from food and they're drinking a Diet Coke. So um, is there a way to only, to, to, to satisfy the brain's needs only through food or do, is, do you find it critical for people to introduce for one, three, 12 months some amino acids to balance them out before they can truly transition to just food? Well, there is no generality. Everybody's different. And, and there are people who are close enough to health that if they are willing to increase the amount of concentrated animal protein in their diets, they will get most of the benefits that other people have to use these supplements to get. There are people who just cannot uh, eat well long enough to make the changes because they crave these drug foods so much. The supplements turn off those cravings. 
which means that they're left with you know their native appetite and they can start eating the kind of brain and body healthy uh, diet that will allow them to sustain without lifetime use of supplements. Right, right. So tell us about what are the main, the, you said there's five chemicals that our brain needs to function adequately. Uh, most people know about serotonin. They've heard the word endorphins. What are the other three? Well, let's, let's slow down though. They may okay. have heard the word serotonin endorphin, but they may not know how it applies to appetite. So serotonin is our natural antidepressant. Uh, and in fact, uh, we eat when we're depressed in order to get a little bit of, uh, of a serotonin boost. And I won't go into the brain chemistry that allows that to happen briefly, but um, just so that uh, you know, the questionnaire identifies, is this a, a low serotonin craver? A low serotonin depressive or not? It's very easy to identify um, a low serotonin person. So, um, and they typically are depressed as well as having cravings. Um, and then we've got the low endorphin person who is pretty sensitive to pain and craves comfort food. So, endorphins are natural painkiller, and it's hundreds of times more potent than heroin. Actually, if we have enough of it. We don't need comfort food if we have enough of it. We and don't. we don't need heroin, apparently, either. That's right. We don't. We certainly wouldn't, did not have an epidemic of it when we were eating a, a high-protein diet. So then we have uh, a natural tranquilizer called GABA, short for something that I'm sure you don't even want me to mention, um, uh, a five-syllable <laughs> word. Uh, uh, but GABA is um, another one of these marvelous things um, that – can instantly interfere with stress. Um, so we get people who come in uh, who are terribly tense, neck and shoulders tight, sitting up rigidly, um, just really unable to relax. And uh, five minutes with a supplement of GABA itself, which is available, easily available in all health food stores, and their shoulders drop, they start to smile, they're sort of lounging in the chair instead of stiffly uh, propping themselves up. Um, so when we're about 70% of people uh, who are overstressed eat over it. Some people are overstressed and they can't eat, but 70% of people nibble or gorge uh, when they're stressed to try and get a little more access to GABA. And then we've got our natural stimulant, which is like a natural caffeine, and uh, those chemicals uh, are called the catecholamines, and we call them the cats for short. Um, again, there's an amino acid that feeds the part of the brain that makes these natural stimulants so that people who are looking for energy from chocolate, which is a big draw for chocolate eaters, mm -hmm. um, uh, and sometimes just straight sugar will give them what they need to keep on going and get through the day. You know, the people who who are nibbling on, on uh, kisses or chewing sugar gum or you know, just keeping themselves at their desks through the use of sugar. Um, Can I just ask a, a question here? It, this, yeah. this whole thing that we're seeing right now, you know, because caffeine, coffee was out a few years ago. In recent years, it's come back with a vengeance. It's, you know, you can drink three to six cups of coffee a day and it'll be great for you. You know, the, you need to drink it. And, and this, this bulletproof stuff, is this just wishful thinking 
are, 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 are people who are jumping on that bandwagon, are they missing this crucial point of the catecholamines? They're missing it all right. They're really deficient. They do not have enough energy to function. Right. That's the only reason people are drawn to these massive amounts of caffeine is that they really help them out uh, temporarily. Um, but but you're right about the disastrous results of, of overdoing caffeine. We had a guy who was had developed a uh, an energy drink addiction. He's a you know, a, a home working computer guy and he hid it from his wife. He was drinking nine uh, energy drinks a day and he had a series of strokes. He was only Holy. 37 years old. Um, and this is getting quite common, but it, it comes from this terrible deficiency condition that we're in. Um, so the, the empty foods create the deficiency and yet they give us a little relief from it at the same time so that we, we never get well. Um, so this, the amino acid techniques, although not everyone needs them, if they're willing and able to radically increase the amount of protein uh, that they're eating three times a day, um, a lot of people who do that, um, even if they end up needing some aminos as well, notice the first red meat meal. That there's, I had, we've had several people who said, I, I could even feel the area of my brain that was changing while I was eating it. Mm. These are people who had been vegans. Yeah. Uh, um, Lear Keith has a very similar story. When we talked to her, she talked about <laughs> just feeling her, her, all the blood rush back into her body and, and her brain just started to fire. And she, you know, what she went into with, uh, uh, a lot of trepidation, which is eating a, some, a can of fish with a plastic fork. Uh, she, uh, you know, she couldn't, she couldn't stop herself. She said she was, just, it just, her brain totally took over and well, it, it was, there was just no turning back. Uh, eating animal protein was what allowed us to evolve from primates to humans. You know, it, we developed our brain based on animal protein. And, you know, if, if someone wants to argue with me about whether that was a good thing or not, um, I I don't know what to say about that. But but now that we're two million years beyond that decision um, to develop our brains to the point that we are, uh, we can't maintain it without the primal food that that allowed it to develop in the first place. Right, right, and and I, I don't know if you're seeing the same thing, but I'm in the autistic community. Uh, I am seeing. A staggering amount of children who have not been vaccinated, and yet the mom is vegan or vegetarian. And oh. I can't help but think there's a connection there. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was I, I was privileged to be in uh, you know numerous mothering groups and la leche groups and and groups where I mean I'm not saying that that vaccines are totally off the hook. I just think it's the nail in the coffin. You know, I, I think that these kids are starting out deficient and then you add something on top of it because you're like, oh, I don't do everything. So I should give them the shot. And I'm like, no, you, that's the worst time to give them the shot. But that, you know, the shot aside, uh, I think that um, what we're seeing is that a lot of these children are missing the brain chemistry. I mean, and, and they're missing a lot of other things other than just brain chemistry. Uh, but they they do. It would appear to me based on the work that you've done, the exposure that I I've had uh, to uh, various communities and other doctors and clinically that there is a, a strong connection 
between not feeding the mother and then expecting the brain of the child to develop normally? Well, again, uh, yeah, to our Thomas, uh, <laughs> I was going to say to our current evolved state. <laughs> it's hard to uh, to get through to people though because there's uh, you know you, there's such a passion and uh, sort of a cult like mentality around certain foods and uh, certain diets, um, and it started in the seventies. You know that was the decade of cults and uh, the cult around low fat and vegetarian eating really took hold. Um, and in spite of the fact that it was very clear, all the research is crystal clear. There are graphs of suicides, graphs of depression, graphs of weight gain, and they all correlate to graphs of diminished protein, saturated fat, fiber, vitamins and minerals. You know, we, we, uh, it's very clear what's happened. And research is is there, but uh, I'm I'm writing a new book, and I'm hoping to help people get over this hump uh, and see you know exactly what happened. Because people who are younger don't really believe because they haven't visually or viscerally experienced mm. a world where people are normal weight. I grew up, I grew up in that world. They don't know. It's a question of of trust and faith that. Maybe it really was like that. I'm planning to have a big website associated with the new book that will just give hours and hours of videotape of people walking around in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah. And then contrasting that to places today. I mean, I'm thinking New York City. One of the big excuses is that we don't move enough. We don't move enough. You have to walk everywhere in New York. You have to walk everywhere in Philly. You know, you, there's no shortage of obese people walking around in these cities. But what you do see, and and my last trip to France, I saw this actually, uh, you know, the, the obese people will be walking around with pastries and bags of chips. Yeah. <laughs> well, the last time I was in New York, um, it was a snowstorm, so nobody was on the street, so I didn't get to see what was going on. And, and it, before that, it had actually been about 10 years, and there wasn't such an obvious problem of obesity then. And I was thinking, well, on the coasts, we're more active, uh, you know, so we haven't been suffering as much as fast. But from what you're saying, it's it's a clearly visible problem there now. Yeah, maybe you don't hang out in my neighborhood, huh? <laughs> No, but you know there is. I mean, it it does definitely depend in some uh, cases because you go into the more, I guess, do they even use the term yuppie even anymore? Uh, you know, but the 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 more you know, young urban uh, yeah. uh, working groups uh, in those areas, you you tend to see less of it. Uh, but you go into the neighborhoods where just the everyday people you know live and work. And you're seeing, you, you will definitely see it more there. Uh, uh -huh. But you see it, you really see it everywhere. I, I really can't, I, I, probably less in New York than in, for example, Philadelphia. Uh, although Philadelphia supposedly has come a long way in, in recent years. But mm. uh, there's definitely no shortage of, of obesity in either city, from my experience. Mm. Uh, so um, I want to ask you something, because you're talking about eating more animal protein. This scares the bejesus out of people. Uh, I know that with uh, Dr. Atkins, uh, people, they just basically were just throwing tomatoes at him, right? <laughs> every any, Anything they could do to make him seem like a quack, to see, make him seem crazy. He was putting people in danger. You know, what's, 
But the truth is that the reason they were throwing tomatoes was because so many people were and still are profiting. That he, was, that he was right, that he was, that, you know, the, the one voice of sanity um, from the 70s on, uh, which he was. Right. So a lot of people didn't get uh, derailed by the bad press, but, but you're right, a lot of people did. Right. Where I was going with this, actually, is that, you know, now we're seeing people who are moving more towards the fats, which is fine, you know, the animal fats, because we definitely need those. And it, it's still, I guess what it is, is there's still this taboo around saying you need more protein. You see what I, you see where I'm going with this? Uh, so there's, it's, it's like, you know, who's going to say a vegetable is bad? It's kind of, kind of the flip side of the same coin. So everybody has sort of, not everybody, obviously, but, you know, many people have, have collectively agreed that we get too much protein, we don't need so much protein. You're you're one of the few people still saying we need more protein, whereas you know some people they've they've admitted yes we take too many carbs, but we're going to eat more fat and still keep the protein moderate or low. Okay, so that's it for today. We'll be back next week to conclude this conversation with Julia Ross. We're going to talk about what protein really is. How the body reacts when you suddenly increase your calorie intake to 2100 and why the internet is an unreliable source of information unless you know what to look for. Come back next week. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean, and our operations manager is Linda Hansen. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you just want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks. Thanks.